So if I were to ask you, in what major motion picture did David Bowie portray Pontius Pilate? The answer to that question would not be Jesus Christ Superstar. I just checked. That's Barry Dennett. Does anyone know the answer? The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin Scorsese, 1988. This was a film that shocked tons of people. The church was outraged. There was actually an arson attack at a big church in France because it was considered blasphemous. And that may be so. I'm not encouraging you to go watch this film necessarily. It might not be edifying to your soul. But it does ask questions that are really important for our text today and for us to think about as we think about who the high priest was in Israel and who is the better high priest in Christ. You see, that movie wasn't just one of these Scorsese screenplays. It came out of a novel by a very famous Greek novelist named Nikos Kazatmizakis. He's that famous that I can't say his name and you might not have heard of him. He also wrote Zorba the Greek if you're familiar with that one. Um, But he, in the opening credits and in the prologue of his 1955 novel by the same name, says this. He says, The dual substance of Christ, the yearning so human, so superhuman of man to attain to God, has always been a deep, inscrutable mystery to me. My principal anguish and the source of all my joys and sorrows from my youth onward has been the incessant, merciless battle between the spirit and the flesh. And my soul is the arena where these two armies have met and clashed. This is the tension that we're thrust into as we think about what is the relationship supposed to be between humans and the eternal God, the perfect, the holy, and the imperfect. What provisions were given to us to bridge that gap? How are we to cope with the fact that we cannot bridge it by ourselves? Our text in Hebrews today is going to help us to do that. Before I start talking about the specifics from Hebrews 4 and 5, I should introduce myself if you don't know me. I'm Ryan Wolf. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm going to be talking through this passage in two main parts today, if you to keep track. First, we're going to spend some time talking about what the earthly high priest is, because a lot of us haven't spent a ton of time learning and knowing about the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, these kinds of things, so we need some background to really get what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And then we're going to bring it home by talking about who is the better high priest and why Jesus is the better high priest. So starting off, we're going to use the text, not quite in the order it's written, because I think that what Paul is really doing here, not Paul, sorry, the author of Hebrews is really doing here, I'm used to preaching out of Paul, I guess, um, is laying out his thesis, and then in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 5, he's going into further detail about how this works. So right off the bat, in Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, to all ears, that might not be a shocking proposition, um, but it really might be for some of the Jewish audience that he's writing to here with this letter to the Hebrews. And he's already introduced this theme once. We caught it just briefly a few weeks ago. Um, that was back in chapter 2, verse 17. He said, Therefore, he had to be made like, the, like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the authors lay out this idea of what a high priest is, and we really don't have a corollary in our society right now to go off of. In order to understand what a high priest is, we can't just say, well, it's like the head of the treasury department for treasury people. It actually has a very distinct and purposeful meaning that I'm going to argue was laid out by God for the purpose of coming into a culmination as is described 
in Hebrews. So to understand who the high priest was in ancient history, you would really need to spend quite a bit of time in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, the books of Moses. That's where the Levitical system, the, the whole system for sacrifices, the system for the temple, and the system for the high priest was set out. It was there that you can get into the excruciating at times, if you take that view, uh, detail of how these things are set up. It's laid out for us in those ways. And if, if you were to spend some time in the next week or so going back to, I would recommend Leviticus, maybe 8 through 10, you could really get a snapshot of what the functioning for this high priest was, how he functioned amongst the people. But as it sounds, he was the number one guy amongst the priests. He was set aside, and he was the one who was ultimately to be standing as the intermediary between the people of God, Israel, and God himself. It was one person set aside. Originally, that was Aaron. You might remember him as Moses' brother. So Aaron was the one who was first set aside, and there was a whole system along with that. Um, Part of it was his priestly garb. So there was great detail. We actually have a photo of of an example. This is actually a photo of a high priest of the these specific things that this person would have to wear. There'd be the ephod, which had two parts in the front and back. It's got a different um, precious stone, which each of the 12 tribes of Israel is on it. It's got 72 bells. I think that was actually on the robe, which is another part of it. Um, it's woven all in blue. It's seamless. Um, there's another part that's the breastplate um, that he would wear in front of all the people on the Day of Atonement. And he also had... Um, the, at the very top, he had the, the mitre, which is the pretty cool hat that he has on. So this is all um, priestly garb that he wore for the specific purpose of being set aside as the high priest. And it seems kind of esoteric. It seems very foreign to what we experience now when we come to church, for a church gathering on a Sunday. But for the Jewish people, it was all set up to be a person who was set aside, a person who could step in to the gap, into the place. And not only was there a person, but there was also a place. God, who had come down and met Moses on Sinai, said, no longer am I going to be amongst the people. Now, I'm going to meet you in the holy place, the most holy place. We call it the Holy of Holies. At first, as God started this trek through the desert with the Israelites after they had left Egypt, they had um, the tabernacle, which is more like a tent. Later, it became the Temple of Solomon. It was in this place where the special portion was set aside where God would meet with the people. It was thought and believed that a person would be killed if they had come face-to-face with God, so there would be special preparations done in advance to have this encounter. It was only done by the high priest. And the most important day of the year, which now is celebrated as Yom Kippur, was the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would enter into that most holy place and he would make an offering and a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He would also make a sacrifice for his own sins. Um, and it was in that place where we often heard stories. I'd heard the story that they would tie a rope to his ankle or to his waist in case he'd be killed because then uh, they could pull him out because no one could go in after him. I actually researched that. Apparently there's not an actual basis for that. It's like a legend or it's kind of apocryphal, but it's a pretty cool idea, and it kind of gets at the idea that everyone's so worried about how holy and intense this place is in the Holy of Holies that only one person can go there. So as you can see, God is laying out a framework for what it's like to encounter him. You can think of when Moses encountered God, his face came away shining, or when Moses encountered God, and God said, you can't look at my face, you can only look at my backside. So he covered Moses' face as he went by. He's setting aside a very holy place, and he's setting us up to understand what it looks like to encounter the holy God. 
So that's where the author of Hebrews comes in. In chapter 5, he starts laying out for us what exactly a high priest must have as his qualifications. He says, For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. A commentator I was studying named F.F. Bruce lays out two different qualifications that are here. I'm sure if you get into the finer details, you can come up with a couple more, but I like his because he then, uh, the author of Hebrews, goes backwards and explains, we'll get to later, how Jesus fulfills these qualifications as well. But the first qualification is that he's able to sympathize with the people. He's able to sympathize with the people. This might be something you've experienced before with church leaders in the front, like myself, Tripp, Brad, Jared, whoever's up here, there sometimes can be a separation. There sometimes can be a sense of, well, I can't talk to that person because they seem like they have it all together. And that's an error that I think a lot of pastors make. A lot of people who might have the privilege to stand up here might feel the pressure to cover up their sins, to come off as perfect so that other people would... Um, I guess glorify God, I think that's good. We all are striving for holiness, which is good, but if we go too far in that direction and we create a space between us, we're no longer able to relate to people. The people who are meant to be coming to the pastor, the people who are meant to be cared for, now find a separation. They find they can't relate to this person and they feel isolated. The ability to receive care is cut off. And that same element was true with the high priest. If the high priest was said, he is sinless, he's never sinned in his life, the people might have more difficulty relating to him. But God and his wisdom in setting up this system actually made it so every year the high priest himself would have to offer a sacrifice before he could enter that most holy place and then make the sacrifice for the rest of the people to make atonement for God, with God. And the other important qualification for how a high priest was found is that it wasn't just a random person. It was a person from among the people, but it was a person called by God. This particular element that we saw there at the beginning of chapter 5 probably would have stung the readers who were receiving this letter in the first century because this beautiful system of sacrificial uh, rituals of the Day of Atonement had begun to unravel. It had lost its beauty, its majesty, its its essence, in a sense, because I mentioned we had the tabernacle, and then there was the, the temple where Solomon was, and that was sort of the high watermark of this system working in its, in its way with the kings of Israel coming, flawed as well, but it was sort of the high watermark of the people of Israel. But then they were sent off in exile, and they came back, and they made a second temple. And now suddenly, within that Holy of Holies, rather than having the ark, and the manna, and Aaron's rod, and the the mercy seat, which was there with the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple. Instead, in the second temple, this had a raised area that was to signify where that had been. And so suddenly, this area where God was meant to dwell amongst people was more like an empty room. And suddenly, as we spent this fall going through the Minor Prophets, there was a period of time where God was no longer speaking to the people through the prophets. 400 years, we talked about that. And so, in the moment we've just entered into where 
Christ has come, it's been in a period of waiting. And during that period, not only was there silence, there was further corruption and decay. That ironic line, ironic is Aaron, not ironic, but Aaron's line of priests had continued on um, through different sons at times. Uh, at the time of David, it was a guy named Zadok. And that lineage of priesthood that was passed down within Aaron's line had continued on and on and on until it didn't. And then suddenly, in I guess you'd call it 1st century B.C., in the middle of the like 50s B.C., um, political individuals started appointing the high priests. They no longer were coming from Aaron's line. Suddenly, there was political designs behind who was being appointed as high priest. And so, as the people read about being called by God, they had to be thinking, wait a second, our high priests now, are they called by God? The ones that are standing in the temple now? Wait a second. Caiaphas was actually appointed by Pontius Pilate's successor. He's not from the line of Aaron. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't how God had set it up. So it would have stunned for the people to hear about how the system was meant to be, but it might have given them hope as well to see that there might be more to it. Now, even in its heyday, the system of offerings, sacrifices being made to God only lasted for a while. It wasn't permanent. Every year, Yom Kippur came again. Every time a new transgression was made, an offering had to be made for it. It was a system of longing and anticipation. Sure, the people, if they rightly understood these sacrifices and offerings, would understand that these offerings are being made in place of my own life. Rather than being killed on the spot, these offerings are being done in my place. That's a hopeful thing. But the not-so-hopeful thing is it has to be done again and again. And I think, if you're like me, you might have experienced something like this in your life. Have you ever been into a, a cyclical spiraling of sin in your life. Let's say you had that hard day at work where you were yelled at by your boss again or they annoyed you to no end and you just don't know how to cope. Your spouse isn't listening so then you decide just to start touching the top of that pint and before you know it, you're at the bottom of that pint and let me tell you, this is not Halo Top. This is Ben and Jerry's and you've dug to the bottom and then you grab another one (laughs) and this is a cycle that you go through. This is where you find your comfort and maybe for you, you start bouncing around on the internet and suddenly an ad catches your eye and it's a beautiful woman and you click there and then you click there and then you click there and suddenly it's two in the morning and you've gone down a spiral of pornography and you're trapped and you think, how did this happen again? How did this happen again? I swore I would never do this again. So you live in shame. Maybe you say, I'll repent later and you go down a week. You spiral for a week and a week and then finally you say, you know what? I'm going to repent. And so you do, and you say, I'm going to do better. And so you do. You white-knuckle it, you do better for a while. And then you have that hard day again, you have that trigger again, someone slights you again, and you're back at it again. And you feel that cycle of shame. It's the same repetition. There's no true cure when you just repent and then try to do better. And in some ways, that's what the sacrificial system had to offer. Yes, it replaced, but then the sin came back again. And so the people were left not only with a good system, but a broken system. And so the words of the author of Hebrews would have been welcome. They would have been life-changing. I hope that they're life-changing for you as well. The author of Hebrews takes the same qualifications in reverse order in chapter 5, the next five verses. He... um, 
And verse 5 says this to go to that qualification of how Jesus was called by God. He says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These are Christ's bona fides. And this is really what uh, Scorsese, because I can't say the actual author's name, was getting at with this beautiful, majestic tension between uh, a man living on earth and also God. That's who we know Jesus to be. He wasn't just a man who was born on earth. He was also God. He was God's son. He was God in the flesh. He was the perfect image of God. And yet, he was fully human. And that's precisely what we need in a high priest. One who is called by God, not just a random person appointed by Pontius Pilate, but one who is brought in for a purpose, to accomplish God's purposes. And he brings up this idea also of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to go as deeply in this as I might, because the author spends more time later on this topic. But I will tell you that the importance for us today is that this means he's not limited by the Aaronic line, by Aaron's line. This is a separate provision of priesthood. So they have the same limitations. It's a better line. Um, and that quote that it comes from is from Psalm 110. And that's another one I would encourage you to go out and read as we're reading through Hebrews because it's this beautiful Messianic psalm. And what's so amazing about it is this thread of Melchizedek was mentioned once in Genesis 14 and not again until Psalm 110 and then not again until this verse. And yet, it's this beautiful picture of how God, in his provision, had for his people a high priest who was better. The other qualification is that of being able to sympathize with the people. In verse 7 it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus wasn't just relying on his own divine nature as he stepped into this role as, as high priest. He connected to the Father the same way that we do, through prayers and supplications, and not just wooden ones, not just sort of uh, going through the motions for the sake of everyone else. This is prayers with tears. This is prayers with emotions and supplications. He's relying upon his Father, just as we have the power to do. He didn't do it in an abstract way, and he is acknowledging the power of the Father, not just claiming it for himself in all humility. It says that God heard him, and God was the one where the power resided. In verse 8 it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So again, he's humbly embracing his humanity. It might be better to say that his obedience was made complete through what he suffered. It was through that process of facing these temptations where his obedience was complete. He didn't live this human life of ease. He didn't sit on the throne and just command everyone else to do what he said. He experienced these great temptations. He had hardships in his life. In verse 9 it says, Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now again, complete is probably a better way of understanding being made perfect because when you read it that way, it kind of sounds like he was imperfect before, but really the idea is that going through God's full plan for his life and his salvation is what brought to completion and and made him perfect. It was going through his entire mission and completing it. And really, this verse captures the essence of the gospel that we all hope in, right? 
It was that he was not merely an exemplary person, but his exemplary life was the culmination of God's plan to reconcile us to himself. He was creating a way for us to experience eternal life with him, both now and forevermore in heaven. That's what he means by eternal salvation. So when the high priests of Israel were delivering, they delivered um, forgiveness of sins for a time. Not complete, but when Christ delivers, it's eternal salvation. That's what he accomplishes in his role as high priest. But as I said, those first ten verses are really expounding what Paul's main points were. And I read for you already verse 14, but verse 15 is where I want to do some work with you all. This is where Paul says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is where I want us to do the heavy lifting today, because this is a profound statement. This is a remarkable thing. He brought up the same theme back in chapter 2. He says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now this brings to mind the temptation of Christ. Not the last temptation of Christ in the movie, but the one where Jesus goes out into the desert and he faces Satan. This is Jesus in in, uh, Matthew 4. He goes out and it's at the very outset of his ministry and he goes and he faces something that sounds very familiar if you listen with a close ear. A tempting serpent, even if he wasn't a serpent at that time, asking Jesus to take on the power to guide his own destiny rather than relying on the Father. That should be echoing in your ear the other garden, the garden at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 where Satan told Eve that the fruit is good for food and she saw there was a delight for her eyes and there was something to be desired for gaining wisdom. This was the temptation that Eve and Adam failed in. This is the temptation that you and I fail in. And yet Jesus went under the most adverse circumstances. He went into the desert where he had been fasting for 40 days. He was lonely without companions. He was in a harsh climate. And he withstood that temptation. Now it would be one thing to come up here and say, well now I'll give you a guide on how to resist temptation. Do like Jesus did. Respond with the word. He actually was responding with the same chapters that John was playing for us at the beginning of this service. Deuteronomy 6-8. through That is actually a great strategy for resisting temptation. I do commit it to you. But if that's all I had to offer for you, I should sit down. But I have much more. When Jesus did that, he wasn't just giving a model for how to resist temptation in your life. He was saying, I have overcome where Adam failed. I have come to take the forerunners, the precursors, the things that pointed towards me and to fulfill them. I'm doing it now. I'm fixing what was broken. I'm the second Adam, as Paul Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5. He's going in and saying, The mistake that Adam and Eve made in the garden is no longer yours. I've overcome that. I've given you the power. Now, another thing to think about when Christ is out in the desert is, well, he's God. It's got to be easy. And plus, I experience much worse temptations. He doesn't know what it's like. But I think there's a very strong argument to be made that the actual temptations that Jesus faced are harder than what we've faced. Now, that's a hard thing to hear because I know people in this room and I know that we've faced hard temptations. But C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I think it's super helpful. In Mere Christianity, he says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. 
A man who gives into into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Makes me think of of a quote by uh, Mae West, (laughs) of all people. She said, um, I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. Um, to put, put this idea more cerebrally and more like a stodgy commentator, ac- academic person would, I think this is also helpful. F.F. Bruce, the guy I mentioned earlier, put, puts it this way. Such endurance involves more, not less, than ordinary human suffering. Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the, of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full, te- full intensity. He who fails yields before the last strain. If you yield to temptation, then you have not experienced the fullness of its power. So what that means is, if Christ is the only one who's experienced the fullness of temptation, he has experienced more than we ever could. Now, I'm not saying that Christ experienced every situation that you face in your life. That would be a hard sell. There's things that go on now, like iPhones and stuff like that, that tempt us. Those weren't around when Christ was there. But he understood on a deeper, deeper level what it was like to experience and resist and to feel the full weight, the full freight of that power bearing down against you and still resisting. Now, the, the verse itself in 14 uses this word sympathetic. And as I read it and I read through the chapter, I thought, that really doesn't sound right. To me, it sounds like empathetic. As I read Christ and I think about Christ, it sounds like empathy. So I dug a little bit and I discovered that sympathy probably came from the Greek word that was there, but empathy was a word that was only invented in 1909. It was invented by a German psychologist and it originally had a slightly different meaning. It meant your ability to project your feelings onto an object. And over time, our understanding has evolved so much. Now, somewhat, now we would say, and Webster says, that empathy is the act of understanding being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another. And you can contrast that with sympathy. Sympathy is usually the feeling of compassion or sorrow or pity towards the hardship that someone else encounters, whereas empathy is actually putting yourself in their shoes. And so I would submit that Christ's incarnation that is coming down and being a high priest on earth as a man who experienced the fullness of temptation is actually the fullest picture of empathy that one could imagine. And so that gives us a powerful way of understanding um, why that is a resource to us. He not only feels for us and he wants better for us, but he's entered into, uh, into our lives. He's incarnationally come into our experience. And this is incredibly powerful for us. I wanted to, to share a little story. Um, I'll try to navigate this with giving the right amount of details. But as I was talking with my wife, Becky, who's sitting up here, about uh, this, this message, and we were talking about why this matters, that, that Jesus experienced our temptations, um, she reflected on an experience that we had recently. We were um, through a kind of a harrowing experience with um, one of our children where we had to explain in great detail a lot of hard things. Um, to people that didn't know us, and actually there are people who are specifically there to like be against us. So it was a very intense situation, and she came away from that feeling physically exhausted. She came away feeling, um, she said it was like this experience she had years ago where she had this, uh, got sick for three days and like lost her white blood cell count and could, 
just kind of overwhelmed and exhausted. And as we were talking about Jesus, she said, if that's how Jesus feels about me, then that is powerful. Because she was feeling that on behalf of our son. She was experiencing that vicariously because it wasn't her who was on trial. I mean, the experience itself was exhausting, but it was having to go into that depth and experiencing the challenges that our son experiences that drew that out of her. And so as we think about a God who did that for us, who experienced what we did, that's what he's able to do. As you're going through something incredibly difficult, that's what he is able to do. He is able to put himself in your place and experience what you are. He knows what it's like, and he has resources for you in that. We could go through specific details about ways that this plays out, but I want to, to get into probably the, the real crux here with Christ because not only did he experience this temptation in the garden, right? Or sorry, only in the desert. He experienced it in the garden as well, which is a beautiful bookend when you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, failing temptation. Christ goes to the garden in Gethsemane and experiences great temptation as well. You'll remember this from Mark chapter 14, verses 34 to 36. Jesus has gone out after the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here with me and watch. And going out a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. If you've ever felt abandoned by your friends, imagine Christ in that moment. His friends in his hour of greatest need are there asleep next to him when he's begged them to stay awake. And here he is. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Uh, then in, in verse 7, I, I went over it quickly when I read it the first time, but when the author says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. He is talking, I think, about Jesus' whole life. But he goes on and he says, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That brings the reader, that brings our attention into the garden, knowing that that was Jesus' moment of greatest strain. That's when he sweated blood. That's when he needed the most. And think about it. He could have walked away, right? I mean, he could have knowing what was going on, avoid this. The temptation there must have been greater than what we've experienced, knowing where he was going, knowing what was happening. And yet, he finishes by saying, not my will, but yours be done. And that, that agony, it's expressed here in the garden, but surely it went all with him as he went up to the cross, as he hung on the cross, and he was offered um, these different things and says the symbolic words. That's where his temptation must have felt the greatest, even as he thought back to Satan in the desert, tempting him to save yourself, Jesus. And the soldiers are calling out, save yourself, Jesus. And at that moment, he's resisting the temptation to do so. And instead, he chooses to save us. This is the God that we have, a God that was able to overcome all temptation and live a sinless life, go to the cross for us. And it wasn't just his own temptations. It wasn't just worldly things that were upon him at that moment that he was resisting. We understand from Scripture that God's great plan of salvation was to take the sins of the people and not just to offer them on a lamb at Yom Kippur, but to put them upon his son on the cross. That beautiful picture of the high priest sacrificing a lamb is now perfected and the high priest becoming the sacrifice once for all. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what we live for. That's what transforms us. 
And so that leaves us with Paul's third statement, I think of his main point here. Verse 16, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is where the rubber hits the road for you and for me. This is where the power comes for a transformed life. We have the power to come to the throne of grace with confidence. The throne of grace was that that was within the Holy of Holies. It was sitting there and could only be reached by the high priest. But now that curtain that had been separating the people was torn when Christ died. So now we have access to the Father, through the Son. We no longer need a human intermediary through this greater high priest, the so much better high priest. So I'm turning the mic, the figurative mic, over to all of you for just a moment um, because I have a question for you to help understand this more completely. And I really value your thoughts here. What does it practically mean to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in our lives? What does that practically mean? And if it's your first time here, we do actually allow you to speak up. Awesome. Yeah, so prayer, huge. I think that's a tremendous way. And with others is another huge way it's, we're able to do that together. So thank you for the example. Abby? Just having confidence and faith to come to God with any emotion we might be having about anyone or him and knowing that we will still be loved. So whether we're angry or sorrowful or joyful or whatever it might be, we can talk to him about anything and know that no matter what we say, we are still fully loved. Awesome. Yeah, so we don't have to hold back or try to impress him with certain things. We're able to come to him with everything. It um, seems to me like that that confidence depends on um, the supremacy of Christ that the first part of was talking about and recognizing the difference between how high he is compared to us, understanding that no matter um, how messed up we are, um, his sacrifice and how how high he is um, makes him more than enough to, um, uh, to take care of um, our brokenness. Yeah, so it's not that he's just human like us, he's also divine, that incredible mystery that he has, uh, that he is so much higher than us. Awesome. And he's the one that stands in for us. Anybody else? Marissa?
Yeah, it's kind of an acknowledging that God is in control. You don't have to make sure everything is fixed if you have someone who's greater than you in control. John? that our confidence doesn't come because God answered each one of our prayers like we want it to. It comes because of what Christ did. And that's, if you look at verse 7, that's, it says that God answered him, and you're like, wait, but he died, and he asked not to die. So it's like he still heard his prayers because it was better, and that was God's plan, and that's where our confidence comes from. Um, there's this gospel song from a long time ago called, and it, and it repeats, encourage yourself in the Lord, encourage yourself in the Lord. Um, and I think that connects to what this verse is talking about with confidence. So how, and you were asking, how do you do that? And I think there's a practical piece about like reminding yourself of the promises, reminding yourself who he is, whether that's like say, literally saying it over and over or like putting it visually places um, so that your confidence is lifted and, and remembering the things he has done in for others, for you and for all of time, right? And, and ultimately... The, the cross, um, but I just, it came to mind that song "Encourage Yourself in the Lord," which is like remember who He is, um, and in, and it's not something you get external, right? It's like you and Him. Encourage mm. yourself and and be remembered because we're so forgetful. Be remembered, encourage, encourage, and that your confidence meter just rises. Yeah, it makes me think of how Israel was so forgetful, so it's like a good lesson to remember. Like, we need to remember what God has done, and this is the hope we have. So you're reciting it to yourself, and you can do it through a lot of ways. You could also do it through scripture reading or memorizing or singing or short prayers, whatever. Jackson? Um, I would say that we, that because of uh, the sacrifice, we can now dwell with the Spirit, and our asking of forgiveness is not a once a year thing event that occurs with the, the high priest going into the Lord of Holies, but uh, rather us communicating with God through the Spirit, uh, asking for our forgiveness because of the uh, I love that because you had this picture of the incarnation being very specific to the Holy of Holies for a long time, and then he like breaks out as Jesus is a man, and then as we know. Um, then when Jesus ascends in heaven, he gives us this promise of the Holy Spirit. And so the incarnation, in a sense, lives on in each of his followers. And that we have that incredible resource that wasn't there before. Alright, so... I said earlier that just coming up with a better way of resisting temptation would not be the, the hope that we have out of this. And I think that some of what you guys are talking about are all, all things that are better than just saying, I can resist better by just reciting these uh, 
scriptures, suddenly now I, I can resist, I have more power, but um, the real power comes from that ability to come to the throne room of grace. So I think in that moment where you're experiencing and you're just focusing on how do I overcome this temptation or this problem, if you only focus on the problem, then you're not availing yourself of the opportunity you have as a Christian to approach the throne with confidence. Um, instead, when you're experiencing temptation, that's where you should go. You should approach the throne instead, instead of focusing. And one of my favorite ways of thinking about this comes from a, a 19th century Scottish theologian, Thomas Chalmers, who I think is really only really famous for this idea that I've heard of, which is this sermon or essay he wrote called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And basically his point is um, that if you just sit in and focus on the things of this world to do that, then you end up, even if you're able to overcome them for a time, it leaves a gap, it leaves a place that's going to be filled in. So let's say you conquer the pint of Ben and Jerry's as your crutch, as your God. Now suddenly you're going to replace it with something else. Maybe it's pride because you did so. Maybe now you switch to the porn, I don't know. But it's not going to be God if you're just removing it and leaving this empty space. But what Chalmers says is that the expulsive power of a new affection, expulsive would mean like to push out. So if you get a new affection... It'll push out the old affection. And so the power of approaching the throne room of grace, the throne of grace, is that you are claiming a new affection. You're claiming the one who has died for you as a thing that captivates you, the thing that you want to draw near to. And as you grab hold of that good thing, it has the power to expel the things in your life out that are temptations. It gives you the power to cling to something better. E X P U L S I V E. Expulsive. I think it's a 19th century word. But it's cool when you think about it like that because um, that's the way that it functionally works when you understand the gospel. Because there is a trap of thinking, I just need to do sin management and behavior management, and that is going to lead you only into frustration. But the power of the gospel is so much greater, and that's what we have, is that we get to be with the one who made us, the one who gave us a model of high priests that we could know how we could be saved from our sins, and then to take that model and blow our minds with it in a much better way that we never could have expected by bringing a better high priest who will intercede for us once and for all. So that's the hope that we have through Hebrews in Christ being the better high priest. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for the intricate picture of your grace that you've woven through Scripture. Thank you that the the idea of a high priest was not just something that men came up with to try to make themselves right with you. Thank you that the idea of high priest was not something that was a failed plan A that you did so you had to come up with a plan B. Thank you that high priesthood was something you designed from the beginning so that Christ could fulfill it in this beautiful way. I pray that we would remember that you are able to sympathize with all of our temptations. I pray that we would remember that we can come boldly to your throne because you are our great high priest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.